Today is Reformation Sunday. You might be wondering why. Well, that's because back in 1517, October 31st, there was a Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther who nailed 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And so today we celebrate the Reformation, God bringing the gospel back into his church. Somebody said that in 1517 there was calm that had settled over the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> well, God was going to interrupt that calm. Praise God for the Reformers. There was a, a man who was, who was known as the, uh, the morning star of the Reformation, John Wycliffe. God used him and John Huss as well. Somebody said that John Wycliffe and John Huss packed a powder keg. Erasmus had woven a fuse. And then on, on October 31st, 1517, Luther lit the fuse and rocked all of Europe, which had reverberations all around the world, didn't it? Well, I love what Wycliffe said. He said this in uh, his, his, his book or his whatever, one of his writings called The Church. Here's what he said, quote, The only head of the Holy Church is Jesus Christ. Now, that may not sound like, uh, you know, that would earn you a title of the Morning Star of the Reformation, but that was really radical at that time. Because at that time, the Catholics believe that the Pope is the head of the church. And this is one of the reasons why the Reformation is not over. Because sadly, the Catholics still believe the Pope is the head of the church. So, the issue is, what, is the, what does the authority have to say about this? And by the authority, I don't mean the Pope, I don't mean the Cardinals, I don't mean church tradition. By the authority, I mean Holy Scripture. What does Holy Scripture have to say about the head of the church? And that's where Colossians chapter 1 comes in. Colossians chapter 1 is very helpful in this regard in, in answering who is the head of the church. Well, let me just tell you this before we actually get into Colossians 1, that the Bible is supremely the book about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself said so in Luke chapter 24. It's about him. The Old Testament records the preparation of his coming. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, present Jesus Christ as God in human flesh. He's the God-man. He's both. He has two natures. And the Bible says he's the one who came into the world to save sinners. In the book of Acts, your history book, you have the message of salvation. And who is that salvation in? It's in Christ. And, and the apostles and the disciples took that message to the world. The epistles, the letters to the churches detail the theology of Christ's work through his church. And then the last book in our Bible, of course, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the full title. And it's presenting Christ on a throne. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords who reigns supreme over all of his creation. And here in Colossians chapter 1, we have one of the Bible's greatest teachings about Jesus Christ. It's a very significant passage. This dramatic and powerful passage removes any doubt or confusion over Jesus' true identity. You cannot 
read this and study this and, and, and come away from this not understanding Jesus' true identity. If you're coming with the right heart, a heart that is truly seeking after God. And so it's vital to a proper understanding of the Christian faith. False teachers in Colossae, much like the false teachers of our own day, they, they would not deny the importance of Jesus Christ. Just like the Roman Catholics would not deny the importance of Jesus Christ. What they do, though, is they dethrone Jesus Christ. They bring him off his throne, they, or at least they try to. And so they give him prominence, but not preeminence. Now, much of the heresy that was threatening this particular church, the Colossian church, centered on the person of Christ, which is why these first few chapters in this wonderful book are, are theological in nature. They're theology before it gets to the application of that theology. So the heretics denied Christ's humanity. You say, why, why would they deny Christ's humanity? Clearly, Christ was human. Scripture proves that. And so they viewed him as one of the, the many lesser descending spirit beings that came from God. That's how they viewed Christ. They taught the spirit was good, matter was evil. And so there's no way that, that Christ could have, you know, he couldn't have been human because to be human is evil. And of course Christ wasn't evil. So that's what they did. So, so a good uh, sent one from God could never take on a body composed of evil matter. That just, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't fathom that. And so the idea that God himself could become man was something that was totally absurd to them. And in the process, what they did is they actually also denied Christ's deity. Scripture is clear that Christ has two natures. He has the God nature and he has a human nature. He has both and he will forever be the God man. So by far the most serious aspect of the Colossian heresy was its rejection of Christ's deity. And here in this particular passage, Paul makes an emphatic defense of this crucial doctrine. This is a fundamental of the faith. This is something we must be unified on. If we don't agree on this, we've got serious problems. And, and we do well to follow Paul's example when we confront cultists of our own day, by the way. Uh, so take, take note of what Paul does here. The primary focus of discussions with uh, these heretics here is, is centered on the deity of Jesus Christ. And, and that's what it's going to center on when you deal with cults and sects of our own day. The deity of Christ. So in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 18, Paul actually reveals our Lord's true identity, and, and, and Paul's going to look at, at, at Christ in relationship to three things. Okay? So these are our three main points we're going to look at today. Okay? I don't normally reveal the three main points, but here they are. Okay? So he's going to look at Christ in relationship to God the Father, Christ in relationship to his creation, and then Christ in relationship to his church. So let's start with the first one. We see here, first of all, that Christ is supreme in eternity with God the Father. He's supreme in eternity with God the Father. Look at verse 15, uh, Colossians 1, verse 15. Actually, the first part of verse 15 says this, 
that He, that's Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. That's the phrase we're going to look at here for a moment. What, what is Jesus Christ? What, what does Scripture say about Him? He is the image of the invisible God. Now there's some words we need to look at there closely, okay? What is Paul doing here? Well, Paul's refuting the heretics with a very powerful description of who Jesus Christ really is. Now, Paul describes him here as the image of the invisible God. The word image there, the word image means likeness. Image is a good definition, a good, uh, good de- or sorry, a good word to use there in that translation. But it also means likeness, and from it we actually get our English word icon. For those of you who use computers, you have icons all over your computer, right? If, you have, if you're using any kind of a Windows screen on your computer, those icons, you click on those icons, they represent something. Well, Jesus represents something. He is the image of God, the Bible says. And, and from it, uh, we, we get other words in the Bible. It was, in the Bible, it was even used to refer to a statue. Uh, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 20, it was used of Caesar's portrait on the Roman coins of Jesus' day. Here's a picture of, of Caesar on one of the Roman coins. That's an icon. That, that's not Caesar, is it? But everybody who looked at that knew that represented Caesar. That was his icon. That was his image. And so when we look at Jesus Christ, we should immediately think Jesus is an image of the invisible God. That's what the word means. Christ did not become the image of God at the incarnation, by the way. He's always been the image of God from all eternity. He's always been that. Hebrews 1 verse 3 describes Jesus as the brightness of God's glory. So what's, what's going on there? Christ is actually reflecting God's attributes just as the sun's light reflects the sun. He's also said to be the exact representation of God's nature in Hebrews chapter 1. So when you see Christ, you, you need to think, okay, I'm, I'm seeing deity, full deity here. And this refers, by the way, this, this word here refers to an engraving tool or a stamp. The exact likeness. Just as you had a stamp, you put that stamp down, what is, what's been engraved on the stamp should come out on the paper or whatever you're, you're stamping or engraving. And this is, by the way, why Jesus says in John 14, verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So in Christ, the invisible God became visible to us. Praise God for that. And by the way, using that that Greek word image there, Paul's emphasizing to us that Jesus is both the representation and the manifestation of God. He's the full, final, and complete revelation of God. He is God in human flesh. And so to think anything less of him would be blasphemy, and it actually gives evidence that our minds are blinded by Satan. You say, give me proof of that. Well, here's proof, okay? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God, 
who is the image of God. So who's doing the blinding here? Satan is. So we see an image here, don't we? Christ is this image. And so as image is is emphasizing Christ's relationship to the Father, which is what? He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the firstborn over all creation. That's that's our next phrase. And and in this relationship, we see that he he is over his creation as well. And, of course, he's also supreme in this realm. Look at verse 15. Not only is he the image of the invisible God, but he is the firstborn over all creation. Let me explain some words here to you. So we see Christ is supreme in creation, but he's supreme in creation in five ways in this passage. Let me point these various ways out to you. In verse 15b there, we see that Christ is firstborn. The idea there is that Jesus Christ has supremacy over creation because he is the firstborn over all creation. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, sadly, the Arians didn't get it right. The Arians had a bad theology, just like the modern-day Arians, the Jehovah Witnesses, have bad theology. They deny our Lord's deity. And uh, sometimes they even try to use this particular verse to support their bad theology. They argue that this speaks of Christ as being a created being. See, it says he is the firstborn over all creation. But is that what it really means? Can you use that phrase and say, hey, Jesus is created? Well, an interpretation completely misunderstands the Greek word to start with. That's the first problem. And it also ignores the immediate context, and it ignores the greater context. So they failed in all three ways. What is the, so let's look at the first part there. What does the word firstborn mean? The word firstborn refers primarily to position or rank. It refers to position or rank. In uh, Greek and Jewish culture... Okay, uh, you need to understand the culture here to help you understand this word. All right, there, there's all kinds of barriers when it comes to scripture, and culture is one of those those hurdles, if you will, those barriers we have to overcome. So let me let me, in case you don't know this, let me help you. Firstborn was the son who had the right of inheritance. Okay, when you read your Old Testament, you see several examples of that. Uh, By the way, it did not necessarily refer to the one that was born first. Hopefully you're thinking of some examples in Scripture. For example, Esau was born first. Chronologically speaking, Esau came out first, right, from his mother's womb. But who had the right of the inheritance? It wasn't Esau. It was Jacob. So Jacob is an example of the firstborn. It has nothing to do with chronology. It is who, who is the position or that rank? So Jesus is that one who has the position or rank. He's the one who received the inheritance. Well, an interpretation of uh, a firstborn to say what Jesus has created is also foreign to the context. It, it's not understanding the context, both the general context of this particular book of the Bible as well as the specific context within this chapter. Think about this for a moment. 
If Paul were teaching that Christ is a created being, he, he would be agreeing with the central point of the Colossian heretics. Which, of course, he wasn't. They taught that Christ was a created being. He's the most prominent of all the, all of the, the things and sent ones from God. And, of course, that runs counter to his purpose in writing Colossians in the first place. Paul's trying to refute the false teachers. <laughs> He's not agreeing with them. When you interpret firstborn to mean that Christ is a created being, it's, it's also out of harmony with the immediate context here. Paul's just finished describing Christ as one who is perfect. He's complete. He is the exact representation of God the Father. And then we come to the very next verse here. Paul refers to Christ as creator of everything that exists. He's creator of everything that exists. So look at the whole context. It's a package. It's not, you can't just take one little phrase, pull it out of its context, and make it say what you want. That is a bad hermeneutic. How could Christ himself be a created being? Well, he can't. I mean, you look at verse 17, it even says, He is before all things. So Christ existed before anything else was ever created in this universe. And of course, God's the only one who existed before creation. So that makes Jesus God. So you see the logic there, I hope. All right? Well, let's continue thinking about Jesus over creation here. Number two, Jesus Christ has supremacy over creation because... He's the creator. He's the creator. Look at verse 16. It says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through Him and for Him. So the false teachers, they view Jesus as the first and the most important of all the sent ones from God. But they believed it had to be, that Jesus had to be a lesser being. He couldn't, he couldn't be at the top of the chain, so to speak. He had to be somewhere down. And so Paul rejects that heresy, insisting that all things were created by Jesus Christ. Now just think about this for a moment. Okay? The extent of God's creation is dazzling. Isn't it? Have you ever looked at God's creation and, and you're just speechless, you're amazed? You should be. i got some pictures here that I hope will be a help to you. Uh, here's a picture of, the, of our sun and the planets. Of course, they're not lined up like that. You know that. But it gives you an idea of the size of the sun compared to our planets. By the way, if you're wondering where Earth is, if you can even see Earth, it's the third one from the sun. We tend to think of ourselves as very big and important in this universe, don't we? <laughs> but I, I want you to look at that and be humbled, because you should be. And by the way, our sun is not even a big one. That's not even a big one. And so God's creation includes things in the heavens and even the things that are invisible, that God's made just simply for his own pleasure. By the way, it, it includes angels. 
We don't know exactly what angels look like, but the Bible does describe angels. Read Isaiah chapter 6, for one thing. The angels in that passage have six wings. Six wings. Do they look like that? Probably not, but that's some artist's rendition of an angel. But, but here in our passage, we have the angels mentioned. There's four descriptions. It mentions thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. Uh, most Bible scholars think this is referring to various classes of angelic powers. The two, the two here, uh, the last two represent the highest order of the angelic realm. And so the problem, you know, we, we have here is that the heretics, they viewed matter as evil. All matter is evil. Only the spiritual was good. So they argued that neither God nor his son could have created the universe. Because God would never create anything that was evil. Did God create things were evil? No. Read Genesis 1 and 2. What did God say about his created universe? He said it was very good. He didn't create it evil. And we, we see this truth emphasized in places like John 1 verse 3. says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he made it. You, you can't get away from that. God made it. Well, there's many things we can learn from studying God's creation. And so number one, we see by studying creation, you can gain a glimpse of the power of the Creator. You can gain a glimpse of the power of the Creator by looking at His creation. Study His creation. Have you ever thought about the size of the universe? That'll make your brain catch on fire if you think about that for too long. I mean, for example, the sun has the diameter of of 1,393,000 kilometers or 864,000 miles. That's just the diameter of the sun. So you get an idea of the size of the sun there. By the way, little arrows pointing to earth. Okay? And you're just a little, little speck on that earth. By the way, that figure is 100 times the Earth's diameter. So the sun could hold 1.3 million planets the size of Earth inside it. That's how big our sun is. Do you realize our sun is not even a big one? It's a small one. For example, the star Betelgeuse has a diameter of 100 million miles, which is larger than the Earth's orbit around the sun. (laughs) That's how big it is. The sun, uh, or or, sorry, it takes sunlight traveling 186,000 miles per second, about eight and a half minutes to reach Earth. Yet that same light would take more than four years to reach the nearest star, which is 24 trillion miles from Earth. This universe is staggering when you start putting the figures together. The Milky Way galaxy contains hundreds of millions of stars. Here's, here's a picture of our Milky Way galaxy. It contains hundreds of billions of stars just in our Milky Way galaxy alone. And astronomers estimate there's billions of galaxies in the universe, many that are bigger than ours. By the way, if you've never seen the DVD, Privileged Planet, I highly recommend it. Privileged Planet, great DVD. It shows talks about our Milky Way galaxy, where, where we are 
within the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, it, it's great. It's very, very well done. But anyway, we see, we see this stuff, and, and lest we forget, God made us and put us on this little speck of a planet. And on this little speck of a planet, God made all kinds of other little things that sometimes you've got to use microscopes to be able to see them. God made it all, the big and the small. In fact, I read a statistic that says scientists have cataloged approximately 800,000 insects. And some of them have billions in some of those species. That's amazing, isn't it? Why would God do that? God did it all for his honor and glory. That's why he did it. And so you can gain a glimpse of the power of the creator by looking at his creation. Number two, the the universe also bears witness to the tremendous wisdom and knowledge of its creator. Uh, I've been blown away as I've been studying about the universe. For example, let's just think about this for a moment. Have you ever thought about what would happen to you and planet Earth if the rate of the Earth's rotation around the sun or even the axis that the Earth is on, if it changed? Talk about global warming or climate change. I mean, that, that rubbish doesn't hold a candle to what would happen if God slowed the earth's rotation down or somehow changed the axis that we are now sitting at. The earth would become either too hot or too cold to support life. You'd die either way. Everything on planet earth would be dying. So, if the moon, here's a picture of the moon and the earth, were closer to the earth... You know what would happen? God uses the moon to, to change the tides, right? Every, was it every six hours? But if it was closer to the earth, you'd have huge tides that would flood the continents. <laughs> A change in the, even the composition of the gases that make up our atmosphere would be fatal to life. There's not just oxygen in the atmosphere. You realize that? Very interesting when you study the composition, of the, even the air we breathe. We take that for granted. We don't, we don't think about that. We don't think, well, okay, good. That was just the right amount of oxygen. Not too much nitrogen, not too much hydrogen. No, nope, it was just right. Are you thinking that as you're breathing? No, you're not thinking that, are you? You just do it. Take it for granted that God's going to have everything just right. I mean, if God changed the mass of the proton, he could create a chain reaction in the atoms. Someday he probably will. And it would result in the destruction of the entire universe if God just, all he has to do is change things the way he's made it within the atoms which make up everything in his universe. So it bears tremendous wisdom and knowledge to its creator. Number three, The universe gives silent testimony to the intelligence of its creator. For example, look what Psalm 19, verse 1 says here. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world... In them he has set a tent for the sun. So the testimony of nature is showing something about our glorious God, isn't it? 
And what does mankind do with that? Generally speaking, mankind looks at God's creation and represses the truth. That's what Romans 1 says. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They push it down and try to ignore it. (laughs) But God keeps pushing it back in our face. Mankind tries to reject it. In Romans 1, verse 20, it says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Number three. We see Jesus Christ as supremacy over creation because everything was created for him. He's not only the creator, but it was made for him. In other words, he's the goal of creation. Look at verse 16b. 16b, it says, not only were all things created, but it says that all things were created through him and for him. They were created through him and for him. Christ is not only the creator of creation, but he's also the end. He's the goal. He's the purpose. Everything began with him, and everything's going to end with him. All things spring forth at his command, and all things are going to return at his command. He brought it into existence, and he's going to take it out of existence, and will make all things new one day. So the Bible says he's the beginning and the end, right? He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So that's what the Bible says. And so as a result of that, glory and honor is, it needs to be given to him. He deserves it. Well, that's, since this is true, since he is supreme over creation and everything was created for him, what does that mean for you and for me? It means we should live completely for Jesus Christ. He created you. He made you. You are not your own, Corinthians says, because you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. So any, any other course then is irrational for a believer. That's what Scripture says. Paul even used similar logic in Romans 11, verse 36. In that verse he says, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And that ends a very long doctrinal section. Romans 1 through 11. Do you know what the very next verse is? After ending this huge, wonderful doctrinal section in Romans, the very next verse, Romans 12, 1, says that we should be totally committed to Christ, and it says it is our reasonable service. We are to present our bodies to Him. It is a reasonable service to do so. That's a command. That's not an option. That's in the very next verse, Romans 12.1. Do you know what that, that Greek word for reasonable means logical? In fact, it is the Greek word logikos. Sounds very similar to logic, right? It's the logical thing for a believer to do. It's reasonable. It's rationable. So as a believer, let me ask you this. Is your life rational or irrational? You say, how do I know if it's rational or irrational? How do I know if it's logical or illogical? And the answer to that is, are you living totally for God? You can answer that. the other questions by answering this question. Are you living totally for God? Have you presented your body to God? 
some point in your life? Have you done that? Say, God, it's, it's all yours, my whole life, everything that you've, you, you've made me a steward of, it all belongs to you. If you've never done that, you need to do that. And then when you wake up in the morning, tomorrow morning, you need to, again, make that commitment. During the day, you need to make that commitment. God, I am totally in service of you. you I am a, your slave. And you have to do that for the rest of your life, every day of your life. That is the battle you will have. Romans 12.1, we are to present our bodies to Him. The problem, the problem with, with making your life that kind of a sacrifice is, here's the problem, when the fire gets hot, you want to crawl off the altar. By the fire getting hot, I mean your life gets a little difficult, you know, you start one of doing your thing instead of God, what He wants you to do, and you want to you want to crawl off the altar and say, "Hey, I don't want to be a, a, a present my body anymore. I don't want to be a sacrifice. I want to do my own thing." I mean, after all, isn't that what the Nike commercial tells us to do? Just do it. Shouldn't that be my life's philosophy? Just do it. No. We are to present our bodies to Him totally living for God. Why? Because Christ is the goal. He's supreme over His creation. He's the one who created it. He made you. Not your mother and father. God did. Number four. Jesus Christ has supremacy over creation because He's before all things. He's before all things. Look at verse 17. It says, He is before all things. So when the universe began, guess what? Christ already existed. (laughs) He was already there. The Trinity existed. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit existed before there was ever a universe. And by the way, they didn't make the universe because they were lonely. They didn't make it because they needed fellowship. They need nothing. They exist independent of the creation. Here's what the prophet Micah said of Christ in Micah 5.2. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Revelation 22.13 describes Christ as the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. And you say, what's the point? Well, if you don't get the point, Revelation expands on that and says Jesus is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. And by the way, the implication is he's everything in between that as well. Number five, Jesus Christ has supremacy over creation because in him all things hold together. Again, look at verse 17. It says, and in him all things hold together. In other words, Christ is the sustainer of everything we see. And you included. So not only did Christ create the universe, the Bible is clear... He sustains it. He's not a deist. He's not the, you know, the big clock maker, wind the clock up and let it run on its own. That's bad theology. Theistic evolution, some call it. No, God didn't make everything and just kind of leave it to go on its own. He, he continues to sustain it. That's what Colossians 1.17 is saying. In Him all things hold together. That's an interesting word, hold. It's in the perfect tense in the Greek language. 
The idea is it tells us that Christ continues, even now to this very day, to hold all things together. He continues to do this. And apart from his continuous activity, you know what would happen to the universe? It'd all fall apart. It would all be destroyed if, if he didn't continue to hold it together. Well, it's not. Just, this isn't the only place you find that truth, by the way. The writer of Hebrews put it this way in chapter 1, verse 3. He said that Christ sustains all things by his powerful word. It's his word that brought it forth. It's his word that holds it together. And it will be his word that will destroy it and make all things new one day. So, he maintains the delicate balance that is necessary for life's existence. He literally holds it together. It's his power that is the force of this universe. Okay, You could literally say that he is gravity. He is centrifugal force. He is the energy of this universe. It's him. I like what Dr. Chestnut wrote in his book called The Atom Speaks. The Atom Speaks describes the puzzle of why a nucleus of the atom holds together. Here's what he says, quote, Consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he finally looks in utter amazement at the pattern he had now drawn of the oxygen nucleus. For here are eight positively charged protons closely associated together within the confines of this tiny nucleus. With them are eight neutrons, a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged and eight with no charge. The next paragraph says this. Earlier physicists had discovered that like charges of electricity and like magnetic poles repel each other, and unlike magnetic poles attract each other. The entire history of electrical phenomena had been built upon these principles known as Coulomb's Law of Electrostatic Force and the Law of Magnetism. What was wrong? What holds the nucleus together? Why doesn't it fly apart? Therefore, why do not all atoms fly apart? End quote. And what's the answer? Colossians 1.17 has the answer. It says... In Him, all things hold together. That's the answer. <laughs> we, do you realize this? We actually live in a world where everything you are and you touch and everything you see is a potential nuclear explosion. And one day in the future, I think God's going to dissolve the, the force that he, he has on everything. Peter actually describes this day in 2 Peter 3, verse 10. Here's what Peter says. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. That's a description of the end of the world. It's all going to be burned up. So without Christ's power holding things together, the, the nuclei of atoms would just fly apart. The universe is going to literally explode. And so until that time, don't freak out. <laughs> until that time, you can trust in Jesus Christ to hold things together. And he does it by the power of his word, Hebrews 1.3 says. So, when, when, you, when you look at this impressive list here of things that Paul's mentioning, 
you, you should walk away from this thinking that Jesus Christ has to be God, right? Has to be God. What else could he be? He made the universe. He exists outside of the universe and before it. And the Bible says he continues to preserve his universe. Therefore, he must be God. That's one of the points we should walk away with. All right, well, it doesn't end there. It, 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 gets, it's, it gets even better, if that's possible. Because in verse 18, we see that Christ is, not only is, is he supreme in eternity with the Father, not only is he supreme over all of his creation, it says in verse 18, he's supreme in the church. And there's four great truths in this one verse that, that we can learn. There's, something, there's some great things we can learn about Christ here, okay? Number one, we see Christ is the head of the church. Look at verse 18. It says, he is the head of the body. And in case you don't know what the body is there, it says, the church. The ecclesia. Uh, what, what does it mean to be the head of the, head of the church? It means he holds the chief position. He has the highest rank. You don't get any higher than Jesus Christ. You don't go any higher. And there's many metaphors used in Scripture to describe the church. <clears throat> but uh, I really like this one here, the body. The body. The church is a body. Christ is part of that body, isn't he? It says he's the head of that body. This concept is, by the way, it's not used in the sense of a company. Uh, too often we think of heads of companies. You know, you got a CEO or a president or whatever of some company. He's the head. Don't, don't think of that, okay? Um, what we have here is a living organism. A living organism, the church. And, and it's inseparably tied together with one who is also alive, Jesus Christ. Inseparably linked. He controls every part of it. He gives it life and direction. And think about it. What would happen to your body if your head was separated from your body? What would happen to your body? You'd be dead, right? Even, even chickens don't run around for very long once their head's removed from their body, right? Eventually, they stop running around. They're, they're dead. They just don't know it at first, right? So the body dies without a head. That's the way God designed it. And so that analogy holds true to... The organism we call the church, it's also alive. You remove the head, Christ, it's dead. Well, that, that, that same imagery is used throughout the Bible, right? For example, the vine and the branches. Christ represents the vine, we're the branches. And Christ says, abide in him. Without him, you can do nothing. You can't bear fruit without him. Well, that's, there's many more imagery in the Bible we could use, but the one here is a beautiful one, isn't it? The body, and, and of course, a body has to have a head to be alive. So he's, what, what is this telling us? One thing it tells us that Christ is the one who energizes the body, the church. He's the one who coordinates the diversity within the body. The body's diverse. Not, not just racially are we diverse, uh, you know, even, um, there, there's, anyway, there, you, you understand the point, right? We have a lot of diversity, even amongst ourselves. Christ is the one who coordinates that and energizes that. Number two, Christ is the source of the church. 
It says He is the beginning here. In other words, He's the originator. He, he's the one who began at the beginning. Uh, the word beginning is used here in a twofold sense. It's talking about Him as the source, but it also talks about Him as, as being supreme over this body. The church has its origins in Christ. It's He who gives life to His church. It's He is the one who gave His sacrificial death. He's the one who arose from the grave. And He did that on our behalf to provide new life for His church. There would be no church without Christ's death and resurrection. So He's the beginning. He's the originator. Number three, Christ is, it says in verse 18, the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? We see that word firstborn again. Firstborn is the same Greek word that was used in verse 15. You remember what it means in verse 15? It means the same thing. It, it, well, obviously Christ was not the first person to be raised from the dead. That's certainly not what it's talking about. Read your Old Testament. There were, there were a few individuals in the Old Testament who were raised from the dead. So Christ isn't the first one. In fact, even when Christ died on the cross, remember the graves were opened, the Bible says? Christ wasn't the first one, but He is certainly the most important, and that's what it's talking about. He is the most important one to ever be raised from the dead. I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He says this, quote, The tomb was a womb from which Christ came forth in victory, for death could not hold Him. End quote. So, here's the point. Of all the people in the universe who, who've, who've ever been raised from the dead, and that's a select group, isn't it? Here's the point. Christ has the highest rank out of all of them. The most important to ever have been raised or ever will be raised from the dead. Number four. Christ is the preeminent one. He is the preeminent one. Look at the end of verse 18. It says that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent has the idea of he has first place. So you, you put these things together as a result of his death, his resurrection. Christ has come to have first place in how many things? Notice, in everything. In other words, the reason for Christ's exalted position in the church is that he is the beginning, he's the firstborn from the dead. And so here, here in verse 18, Paul summarizes for emphasis that Christ is supreme in everything. And that's not the first time Paul's talked about this. For example, in Philippians 2, verse 8, he says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, not everybody bows the knee to King Jesus today, but one day they will. They will one day. So what do we see here? We see Jesus Christ, He's King of kings, Lord of lords. He's reigning supreme over the visible world, but not just the visible world. He reigns supreme over the invisible world. That includes Satan and the demons and all the angels. 
So we've, we've seen that, but we've also seen Christ reign supreme over his church. Without him, there wouldn't be a church. And so what does this mean for us today? Well, here it is. In everything, Christ deserves to have the supremacy. Okay? If you walk away with nothing else today, remember this. In everything, Christ deserves to have the supremacy. He is supreme. Now, whether or not we make Him supreme in our own lives doesn't change the fact that He is supreme. Okay? So please don't, don't, don't go down that road and say, hey, you know, Christ isn't supreme unless I make Him supreme. No, He already is supreme. You just need to get on board. Okay? He needs to have first place in everything. And so somebody once said that if Christ is not Lord of all then he cannot be Lord at all. He's Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. I mean, just think about this. What, what does this actually look like in your life, okay? Lest you're not getting the point. Let me, let me elaborate here for you, okay? He needs to have first place in your family. He deserves supremacy in your family. And that goes whether you're, whether you're single, you're married, you're retired, and a widow, or whatever state of your family you might be in, that goes for you. Okay? He must have supremacy in your family. So, that goes for the decisions you make. That goes for, the, for your time, for how the money is spent. Do you consider that God is supreme over your money, your time, your, the people in your family? Are you even thinking that way when decisions are made and what you do, what you say? Should be. Should be. It goes for your marriage, those of you who are married. Christ is the head of your marriage. Okay? The Bible says the husbands are to submit to Christ. Wives submit to the husbands. There's a ranking in order, not because... Wives aren't as good as the husbands. Okay, that's not the point. You're equal. Okay, you're a complement, but, but there's a ranking. You have different function to play. Okay? So, you know, men, you submit to Christ. Wives, you submit to your husbands. Your husbands, the Bible says. Not to somebody else's husband. And so in, in the midst of, of, of your relationship, there needs to be a... The, the great submission in, is Christ, right? He has first place in that relationship. He must have first place in your profession, your job, what you, what you do for a lot of the time during the week. Okay? That means the very job you pick. Christ must be involved in the decision-making of that. What you do in your profession, Christ must have first place. When you decide to get out of that profession... Christ must have first place. Okay? You must run an honest business because Christ tells you to. Right? You, you get the point? You must pay your taxes because Christ tells you to pay taxes, even though you don't want to do it. All right? So Christ must have first place in our mission, in our ministries. Okay? What you do outside your profession Christ deserves first place in that. Christ deserves first place even in what you're thinking, your very thoughts throughout the week. 
Are they focused on Christ and things that are pleasing to Him? Or have you been thinking about things that you wouldn't want Him to know about? I mean, think about that anyway. That's silly because He knows everything. He knows that inappropriate picture you clicked on on the internet, on the computer. He knows that inappropriate thought, maybe a lustful thought. You, you looked at somebody and you, you had a lustful thought toward that person. He, he knows what's going on in your mind. Must have first place. Must have first place in our time. I mean, you think about it. If you, if you tithe your time during the week, you realize that comes out to be 17 hours in a week. I'm not trying to be legalistic on this, okay? But, but I'm just trying to throw out this, to hopefully jog your, your thinking here a bit. Are you even thinking about, okay, my time or is it God's time? How are you thinking with your time? Most of us think, okay, you just do what we want. But no, you can't. It's God's time. He has first place in what you do with that time. It's not yours. What about your love, your, your devotion, your affections? Where's that? Again, does Christ have first place in your love? You've got to guard your heart, the Bible says. What you love, be careful, because where your heart goes, that's where your treasure goes. That's what Christ said. Be careful. Conversations. Again, does Christ have first place in your conversations? Are you even thinking about Christ when you're talking with your mother, your father, your sibling, or a workmate, or your children? Should. What about your pleasures, your hobbies? Okay? That doesn't belong to you either. Okay? Your pleasures, your hobbies, those belong to God. Again, Christ should have first place in those. It's not, hey, you know, you know hey, I went to church on Sunday, now I get to do what I want. No. It's all His. What about eating? You mean I, gotta, I have to think about Christ having first place even in my eating? Yes. What does 1 Corinthians 10 say? Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So even the mundane things of life, again, Christ must have first place in our play. Some of us spend more time at play than others, particularly children, teenagers who don't have jobs. We need to be thinking, okay, does Christ actually have first place in my playtime? Sports. For those of us who are a little bit older, we might have a sport we play. What about that? Or maybe you're one of those couch potatoes. You, you know, I don't want to play it. I, it's much more fun to watch it. Well, guess what? Christ deserves first place as a couch potato as well. You need to think about that. What we watch, what we read, which is one reason why... I, I rarely read fiction because I want Christ to have first place in everything, including what I read. And even in our music as well. We, we, notice, you notice how people talk about music? It's, it's my music. I mean, I even have a category in, in, in my computer It says my music. I didn't label that. You know, <laughs> we, we tend to think of it as, hey, it's my music and... You know, particularly when the things go in the ears. You know what I'm talking about? The, the earphones go in the ears. You kind of block out the rest of the world. And people think, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, nobody hears it. It's mine. It doesn't matter after that. I can do what I want. Well, 
I like this definition of Christian music. It says, Christian music is that music in which, not just the music itself, but listen to this, the text, the music, the performers, and the performance practices are conforming to the image of Christ. Well, that would shut down a lot of Christian, so-called Christian music right there if all four of those things were actually practiced. All four of those should conform to the image of Christ. He should have first place even when it comes to music and even in worship. By the way, worship is a 24-7 thing. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's not just a Thursday night thing. It's not just, hey, you go to a Bible conference or a ladies' Bible study. No, worship is something you're always to be doing. God created you to worship. So in that, of course, Christ should have first place. So what do we do when we sin? Should we sin? No, of course not. (laughs) When we sin, we need to repent of that sin, forsake that sin, run to Jesus Christ, ask Him to forgive you, and and then ask Him to give you the power to please Him with your life. So, my friends, don't continue in your sin. Give Jesus Christ first place in everything. He deserves it. He deserves it. Is he preeminent? Does he have first place in your life? By God's grace, he will.